The following episode contains discussions of drugs, drug abuse, and the impact drugs have on families and society, including mentions of overdoses and death. We know these can be difficult topics to talk about, but ignoring them doesn't make the problem go away. Drugs are very prevalent in our own community and communities across the country. And that's why today we're sitting down with a DEA agent and a Pierce County Sheriff's deputy to talk about fentanyl, vaping, and other drugs that students and families need to be aware of. I'm Connor Christofferson. Joining me as always is Doug Boyles, and this is the Bethel School District Presents One Pill Can Kill. If we're seeing an average dose of 2.4 milligrams in a pill and a child gets it, a toddler, and we've seen that before where two-year-olds at parks, have they picked up a blue pill and they've overdosed. That's a massive amount for somebody that young and that size. That's DEA acting special agent in charge, Jake Galvan. We sat down with him recently to take a deeper look into the fentanyl crisis. We started our conversation talking about the DEA's first family forum. It was designed to bring together family members who had all lost someone to a fentanyl overdose. I've been in law enforcement uh, 28 years, 25 with DEA, three years with Chicago Police Department, and that was the absolute hardest day in that 28 years that I've ever experienced because you can see the loss that those families suffered. And it was because they were poisoned. Their children took a pill and they didn't know what they were taking and they never woke up from it. They met somebody online in, in the majority of the cases. They thought they were taking a, uh, an oxycodone or an Adderall or a Xanax or, or something else and it turned out that there was fentanyl in there and they never woke up from it. So to bring all those families together, that was, like I said, that was the hardest day. But in the end it was good because they all came together and that was the idea is to bring them together so they can help other families and prevent other families from experiencing what they did. That was the whole goal of it. It was good to see them all come together, all rally around each other, because they, they knew they had that support. They weren't just there by themselves, like they thought coming in at the beginning of the day. And you could see that evolve throughout the day, is what it is. And by the end of the day, the spirits were a little higher, but you can still sense that palpable loss that they experienced. But you could also see and feel their commitment that they were fully committed to move forward and do whatever they could to stop this from happening to another family. On the DEA website, you have these emojis that kids are using with drug dealers. Can you talk about that a little bit? How, how big of a role is social media playing in, in fentanyl? Social media plays, it's a, it's a huge role. There are 305 million social media users in the U.S. Population in the U.S. is 380 million. Everybody has a phone. Some people have two phones. And what the cartels did, and I'm talking about the Sinaloa cartel and the cartel known as CJNG, Cartel Jalisco, New Generation, they've optimized this to sell their product. And, and optimizing it, just like you said, is they're taking advantage of these emojis, the, the symbols that represent what they want to sell. We have met with the social media companies, and when I say social media companies, that's Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Telegram, all of those at the headquarters level. We have told them that the cartels are using their platform to sell these deadly drugs. Congress has told them their platform is being used to sell this. Family members of victims have told them their platform is being used to sell these drugs. They need to do more. They need to be responsible for what's going on in their platforms because they track everything that goes on on their platform even to who they connect with via the instant messages, the more personal messages. They're tracking all of that. 
So looking back over the past couple of decades, it seemed like we heard a lot about cocaine in the 1980s, and then it felt like in the 90s, heroin was the big drug, and then in the 2000s, it was meth. It's now 2023, and it seems everyone is concerned about fentanyl. Is this the worst it's ever been? This is the worst it's ever been. When I started, I started in, in 98, and I was, I was assigned to San Diego, and at that time, it was methamphetamine was the biggest thing. And the methamphetamine was made in, in Mexico, brought over. There was still methamphetamine being made within the U.S., but people weren't overdosing as much as they are now, and, and I'll get to that. How we dealt with that then is we stopped those chemicals from coming into the U.S. We also work with Mexico to stop the ephedrine coming in to Mexico. At one point, there was enough ephedrine coming into Mexico to dose every citizen in Mexico multiple times. Today, the fentanyl, it's a precursor chemical. The chemicals are bought from China, they're shipped to Mexico, and they're just pressed in the pills or made into powder and, and shipped over. Now, the difference between fentanyl and cocaine and, and say methamphetamine, you don't need these huge laboratories. You don't need you know farming and all that to do that. This is purely synthetic. So they're only limited to how much chemicals they can buy and import to produce. And that's what the cartel has realized is we can make so much more money by making fentanyl than cocaine and methamphetamine. So the precursors coming from China, is there a legal therapeutic use for this that they're making or we're just making it to make illegal drugs? There is a legal use for fentanyl. Fentanyl is usually used for, for pain management. As we sit here now, we're sitting across from Harborview Hospital. They're probably using it right now as we speak for, for pain, for surgery, for outpatient procedures. But that is medical grade fentanyl. This is fentanyl that is made from the precursor chemicals that come from China in labs that are in the countryside in, in conditions that are nowhere near like what we are used to at pharmaceutical grade levels. So the DA's new slogan around fentanyl is one pill can kill, but we all know pill sizes do vary. So what amount of the drug are we talking about when we're talking about a lethal dose of fentanyl? So what we see uh, a lethal dose of fentanyl is two milligrams. Two milligrams is enough to fit on the tip of a sharpened pencil, a couple grains, basically. Typically in an outpatient procedure, 10 micrograms is used. So we're way above micrograms, we're in the milligrams. Now on average, we're seeing even above that. We're seeing 2.4 milligrams in pills that we're seizing, and six out of 10 of those pills are containing that lethal dose of fentanyl. So kids are taking these pills, they don't know what they're taking. Maybe they think they're taking Percocet or, or something like that that they're getting, and, and they're overdosing. What do you tell families, what do you tell parents to help protect their kids? Well, I, I think that's exactly it, is, is you said it. Kids, they don't know what they're taking. They think they're taking an oxycodone, an Adderall, a Xanax. They don't know that fentanyl's in there because the cartels have put fentanyl in everything, all the fake pills, methamphetamine, cocaine, and they're doing that to drive addiction. When they drive addiction, they're able to sell more drugs, and that's all they care about is making money. They don't care who they harm or who they kill. So the message to parents is parents need to have a conversation with their kids and tell them that there is no legitimate pill out there that they can get on the internet, through social media, through online sites, or even from a friend. They shouldn't be taking anything unless they get it prescribed from their doctor and it gets filled from a pharmacist. The DEA's One Pill Can Kill website has a lot of photos of lethal doses of fentanyl, how small it is. It also has a picture of pills just in rainbow colors. Why are the cartels making pills in different colors? So we've seen this before. And, and what this is, is this is just a pure marketing scheme by the cartels to make it more appealing to everybody, not just kids, not to target anybody, just to everybody. It's something different. 
We've seen it in the past with colored cocaine. We've seen it in the past with colored methamphetamine. And now they're doing it with pills, all different rainbow colored pills. These pills will kill you just the same as the, the blues is what they're called, the M30s. There's no difference. There's no difference in the, in the potency. There's none more or less. They're just as deadly as the other ones. So let's talk a little bit about the potency of this drug versus some of the other drugs. We've heard that it's 50 times as potent as heroin. Can you speak to that a little bit and tell us exactly what this drug does to especially a child's body? It is 50 times more potent than heroin. It's 100 times more potent than morphine. An opioid is, is a respiratory depressant, so it's going to depress uh, somebody's breathing, basically, is what it comes down to. And you literally just stop breathing. If we're seeing an average dose of 2.4 milligrams in a pill and a child gets it, a toddler, and we've seen that before where two-year-olds at parks, have they picked up a blue pill and they've overdosed. That's a massive amount for somebody that young and that size. And that's how hospitals, that's how doctors calculate dosage is your height, your weight, your size, and that goes up and down. There is no calculation in these. They are average dose, 2.4 milligrams, which is, it, it all depends on the person taking it. Some people might have a tolerance for it, but that's that's really not what we're seeing. It's affecting everybody. Hearing all this, it, it might feel hopeless. This is a societal crisis that we're having. Is there any good news that you can share with us uh, about the battle against fentanyl? Yeah, I, I can. And and, and you're right, at times it can feel like, you know, there, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. But the American public should know that this is DEA's top priority. Every agent, not only in the Seattle Field Division, but in this country and throughout the world, it is their top priority to deal with fentanyl and to defeat the cartels and to keep our communities safe. We are targeting the whole organization and the whole supply chain. We're targeting the top level people. We're targeting their distributors. We're targeting their, their finances. We're targeting their infrastructure. We do that with our agents, our intel analysts, data scientists, our chemists, across the board. We are full steam ahead, and every resource we have is being directed towards this. Parents do. They, they need to have that talk with their, with their kids. It's, it could be a hard talk, but it's a talk that can save their lives. We were all kids at one time, but now the odds are they're stacked against kids right now. With the 2.4 milligrams, the odds are against them. They're either going to overdose or they're going to become addicted and then eventually overdose. So parents have to have that talk with their children. Schools, schools have to realize this is in their schools. They can't turn a blind eye to it. They have to accept that and they can help amplify the message also. Well, DEA Acting Special Agent in Charge, Jake Galvan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a really important conversation. We're glad you're having it with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You can learn more information on the DEA's website, dea.gov slash one pill. Joining us in studio now to continue this important conversation is Pierce County Sheriff's Deputy Carly Capetto. Carly, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. This is such an important topic to cover. So Carly, the question is, what is Pierce County seeing in regards to fentanyl? Who's being affected and what do we need to look out for to help protect ourselves and our kids? Everybody is being affected by fentanyl. It's not just fentanyl addicts and, and people that are using fentanyl. Every community member is affected because it causes somebody to not be able to hold a job, not be able to hold a family, not be able to care for their children, which therefore trickles down to the rest of the community because it causes the community to have to step up and, you know, foster more kids. Our foster care systems are full. Theft crimes are, are extremely high right now. A lot of the thefts are, are from 
people that are looking to to steal something simple in order to sell it quickly and and make some money for their next hit. One thing that I do want to mention that makes fentanyl so unique is how cheap it is to get it. Prior to fentanyl and fentanyl's you know, only recently been coming on the market here in the last, I'd say, year or so. Heroin used to be the highest sought out heavy drug you could come to. Heroin was considered one of the worst once you had heroin and you were at that level, it was really hard to come off of. Heroin was also expensive. So a daily user of heroin could be at $90 a day to supply a heroin addiction. Fentanyl, like you had mentioned, it's 50 times stronger, but it's also way cheaper. So a daily user for fentanyl can cost maybe $24 a day. To be honest, I don't even see heroin anymore on the street. Heroin is is becoming non-existent because it's not sought out like the fentanyl. The fentanyl is stronger and cheaper, and that's more attractable to a lot of the people. A lot of the people that I know are are drug impacted um, that were my heroin users, and I still see them on the street, and I'll talk to them. They're now fentanyl users, and they've they've admitted that to me, that they no longer use the heroin and that fentanyl is now their choice. So we're really seeing this move uh, in this direction towards this very dangerous drug. You mentioned heavy users, daily users of fentanyl. What about students? Is there a place that students might encounter this that they need to, to be wary of? Fentanyl is so easily accessible right now, more accessible than, than heroin was. And because it's cost-efficient, a, a juvenile with a couple bucks can buy a pill. So right now, the cost on the street for one pill is $2.00. You could get a soda for $2, so it's very attractive in that. Fentanyl, it's not hard to find. Our juveniles right now, they know it's out there, and the ones that are using, it's because it's probably in the home already or lack of supervision at home. What I try to get parents to know and students to recognize that right now with the vaping and the marijuana use, a lot of these students that are coming into our schools are predispositioned to have major addictions later on. And it's because of their biological makeup. If if their parents had used drugs through utero and then they were born drug impacted and then they recovered from that a lot of these students don't even realize they are predispositioned to be drug addicts if they are not cautious. And the amount of usage that's on the street right now, we're seeing more and more students with these predispositions, and they're going around smoking vapes and marijuana, you know, thinking that it's not a big deal, it's just social, and getting them to recognize what their predispositions are and that potentially it could lead into a lot more. Watching the news, we've had a handful of juvenile deaths where the call has come out that they just, they just, they're not waking up. They don't wake up. I think what people don't realize is that these juvenile deaths are related to some sort of drug exposure, most likely. Usually the medical examiner can predict that and determine that. To somebody that doesn't do drugs, a small amount of that fentanyl can kill you. You can't just go from never using a drug to jumping right to fentanyl. You will die. 
typically it's a buildup. It usually starts with marijuana vaping, and then you get bored with that, and um, it's not the same high that you used to get to. And so then a student would want to move to Percocets or pills. Typically they find those in the cupboards of family members or grandparents or friends, and then they'll smoke those and get a higher high than what they were getting with marijuana. That only lasts so long before they get experimental with other types of highs and and more highs. So you're you're prepping your body over a course of time. And it only takes a year or so or less, depending on how often you're using, to prep your body to a high dose of a type of drug. After the, the pills, it typically comes methamphetamines would be the next level of drug. And then from methamphetamine, it used to be the heroin, but you can't really find heroin anymore on the street. It's now the fentanyl. And so they're mixing a lot of small doses of the fentanyl in with other types of drugs. Once your body establishes that tolerance for, let's say you're doing one hit a day, you can only maintain that for so long before you don't feel the high anymore. And then you have to get, do two hits a day, and then you move from two hits to three hits a day and four hits a day. I had a very sad encounter and an arrest that I had to make with a gentleman after he was taken into custody. He had shared that he was a fentanyl user, and we had a, a really good heart-to-heart conversation, and I had asked him, I said, you know, how much are you spending on your fentanyl? And he would said, oh, it only cost me $24 a day. And I said, how often do you have to use? And he had said, every two hours. So every two hours he had to take a hit in order to maintain that high level of high to to normalize what he thought was a normal level of feelings. I had asked him, you know, about his job and his family, and he had said that fentanyl took all that away from him. Having to take a hit every two hours prevents him from holding a job, prevents him from raising children. He's, he said he's fearful to be around his children because of the exposure that he would bring to them, even just if there was powder on his pocket or on his hands or anything like that. So he, he knew his addiction had, had taken him over and he did not know how to get out of it. As a heroin user, it was common to occasionally see someone out of remission that could come out of heroin. Few and far between, but it it was possible. With fentanyl, I have yet to see somebody come out of remission and recover from fentanyl. You mentioned that a lot of times when kids are getting started on this kind of drug journey, for lack of a better term, they're finding prescription pills in their parents' house, in their grandparents' house, in their friends' parents' house. What kind of advice would you give to parents to safeguard their kids from that type of exposure? What should they be doing right now? The parents should be involved in the in the child's life. I know as a parent myself, your kid reaches an age where they become very independent. They can make their own meals and get themselves up and get themselves to school on their own. And I think a lot of parents feel like, ah, they can take a breath. I can step back a little bit, give my child some more independency. 
and, you know, let them kind of do their thing. And I'm just going to sit back and relax a little bit more. And the best advice I could give to a parent, that is not the time to take a backseat role in your child's life just because they are now an independent young adult. That is the time where parents should be engaging, should be asking questions with their child, should be checking backpacks, occasionally going into bedrooms and just doing a, a walkthrough of bedrooms, not because you're, you want to get your child in trouble, but because a good parent would make sure that their child is safe. And we've all been a child before. We've all made bad decisions before. We've all tried to possibly hide stuff from our parents. So a good parent knowing that, you know, and if you loved your child, you would you would constantly ask them questions and constantly be checking on what they're doing. A lot of these medications you can buy over the counter. You can buy cough medication and get high on that hairsprays and all sorts of aerosol cans. Parents need to educate themselves on just kind of different ways students are using these over-the-counter type items you can buy at Walgreens or Rite Aid. Not that you're going into their bedroom to, you know, intrude on their privacy, but what looks out of the normal in your student's bedroom? Like, why would there be a spray can there? And ask questions. You know, it's those types of things that I think as parents were missing because all this stuff is new to us. This wasn't around 20 years ago. And it's so easy to, to hide. So the best advice, if you're going to take anything away from this podcast, is don't take a back seat because you feel like your child is being successful and, and independent, they, they truly still need a parent around and they need a parent asking those questions and, and questioning, you know, what's this and what's that and let's talk about this and educating them. Because if you don't educate them, I guarantee someone else will educate them and it's not going to be the education that you want. You as a parent want to get to them first so that when they encounter that other person, they're equipped with tools and knowledge of what you instilled in them first. So you mentioned vaping as one of those things that kids might pick up at home. Um, the rise in vaping among teenagers has been astronomical. The 2022 National Youth Tobacco Survey showed 11.3% of middle and high school students, which is like 3 million kids across the country, reported that they use tobacco products with the most common being e-cigarettes or vaping. And I wonder if actually it's not more than that because those are just the kids that are admitting to it on a survey. That's very true. And we know not all kids are taking the survey, but 3 million is a lot to start with. Vaping is so prevalent, actually, our district was involved with other school districts in litigation against Juul, the e-cigarette company, in the settlement this March. We actually got funds that we can use for health education related to vaping and other similar causes. So, Carly, how big of a problem is underage vaping in Pierce County? I would have to say it's it's definitely out of control. And to give you an, an example and a kind of a clear picture of what we're dealing with, to get a vape sensor put in a bathroom, they're very expensive units to put in. And I've heard of some schools having these vape sensors. They were going off so often that staff no longer even pay attention to them going off because it's too overwhelming. 
you could walk by a bathroom and, and smell it instantly and you go in there and there's 15 students in the bathroom. And with the laws that are put in place, we can't question anybody. We can't do any sort of investigative work. We are eliminated from doing backpack searches if we don't actually have probable cause to determine that it was you. So if we suspect anything, our hands are pretty much tied unless we can come to 100% probable cause that, you know, you in fact were the ones that did it. And, and occasionally we will, and, and some students will come forward and confess, but that's few and far between. So with the, the vaping in the schools, it's unpreventable. It's, it's in our middle schools, and it's in our elementaries. I've seen it as young as third graders. And a lot of these students that, that have these vape devices, they're getting it from older siblings. And I've had many students say that their parent allows it, and how dare I take it away from them because it was given to them by their parent. And I think a lot of times this is where parents want to just kind of give in because they're frustrated with their child, and so they think that by allowing them, okay, well, I'll just allow you to vape anyways. If that's what you're going to do, I'm just going to allow it. And I think that's where we start to see more and more of the vapes, and then they pass them around to their friends at school. Many of these vapes can be laced with certain stuff. I've had many overdoses in the schools where somebody was offered a vape and it was laced with a higher potency of a type of drug. Potentially, you know, fentanyl pieces can be laced in there or a stronger level of marijuana that that student's not used to. And the kids have no, they don't even ask questions who gives them the vape. It's just the fact that it's a vape and I'm going to take it. So there's no safety measures taken. They don't ask questions where it came from, what's in it. These students are just hitting on these vapes and passing them back and forth. They'll hide them in the tampon dispensers and the toilet paper roll dispensers. They'll hide them in cabinets, anywhere they can, in in bathrooms. And then they'll text all their friends where it's at. And then throughout the day, students just go back and forth to the bathroom and share on the same vape. The exposure is so, so extreme that you're almost a minority if you don't vape. When we're talking about vaping, this could be tobacco, it could be marijuana. Yeah, it can be vape, it can be marijuana, but it also can be laced with something else. You should never trust anybody with any of that stuff because you you don't know what someone's intentions are. You don't know if their tolerance is higher than yours and what the level of drug that's in theirs could be more. And believe it or not, we've actually seen overdoses of marijuana now too. So the potency in some of the marijuanas that can be purchased is so incredibly high that you can actually overdose and and go into um, a passed out state of mind and you're incapacitated. And that can also be done from marijuana as well. And that's one we haven't seen before and we're starting to see more and more. How do you see the future the next couple of years unfolding in terms of drug abuse in our community? I think it's gonna get worse. And I say that because as of right now, if I notice somebody doing drugs or has drug paraphernalia in their lap, it would be a drug referral, which is not a arrestable offense. It's not even an offense at all until they get to three offenses. 
That's assuming that the deputy making contact even wants to put themselves in a position of risky drug exposure to have a social contact with somebody that's not going to be prosecuted or impacted in the, in the system. We, we can't arrest these people. So without that changing, there will not be a change. It will increasingly get worse. And there's not a single person you can talk to that has not been impacted by a family member or a loved one or a friend that has been impacted by drugs. And that number is going to increase. And it just, it's so easily available for anybody off the street that it's the only way to combat this is to talk to your children and educate and monitor and, and be that parent that's asking questions and hovering over them. That is the only thing that I am seeing as a tool to combat this at this moment. So this was certainly a heavy conversation, but one that I'm really glad that we're having, and I'm glad the parents are going to be able to listen to this. Deputy Carly Capetto, thank you so much for what you're doing out there, and thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome, and everybody go home, love on your kids, and uh, ask those questions, and and step up and be that parent that you need to be. Don't, don't take a back seat. This is not the time. That's going to do it for our show today. We want to give a special thanks to Deputy Carly Capetto and DEA Acting Special Agent in Charge Jake Galvan for joining us for this important conversation. And as a reminder, you can learn much more about all of the topics we discussed today on the DEA's website, dea.gov slash one pill. Thank you all for listening. Be safe and look out for each other.